I know I was going through Psalms a while back on Wednesday nights, and not sure yet where we'll go with all those things. And uh, I thought about picking up where I think I had left off, but then um, I was just really reflecting on Psalm 139 today, and so I want to share a few thoughts with you from this. Uh, as we begin looking at Psalm 139, I think we need to consider the reality that when we're in the midst of great difficulty, it is also potential for great temptation. We might think that if we have faithfully served God for a long period of time and whatever else, that um, we would be past temptation. But the reality is that there is, if you look at the end of Psalm 139, David is still asking God, search my heart, search me and know my heart. Verse 24, see if there be any hurtful, evil, or wicked way in me. David, having been following God a long time, David, don't you know all the right things? David, having written all these songs and psalms and prayers to God, yes. Despite all that, we need to be aware of the potential for temptation in times of great difficulty. What then helps us to have a right response in those times? What helped to put David in a position when he writes this psalm to be able to say, I am in direct opposition to your enemies, O God, in verses 19 through 22, to say, search my heart, and if there's any evil in me, root it out, to trust God and to say, know my anxious thoughts, lead me in the everlasting way, build that relationship that I have with you. What enabled David to have that response? I think the reality is, God knows all things. God is everywhere. And God has a wonderful, perfect specific plan that he's working out in our lives. So let's look at those each in order. First of all, God knows everything. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Think about that. Who else can we look to except God and say, you've searched me and you know me? Now, there's some people that know us better than other people, but no one knows us to the degree that God knows us. Think about Jeremiah 17:9, where it says, The heart is deceitful and wicked, but I, the Lord, try the reins. I know the heart. God knows even the things we're not willing to admit to ourselves or other people with regard to how evil we are or with regard to the secret fears that we have or all of these things. God knows us. God knows our activities, not just our thoughts and what's going on inside, but God knows our activities. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, before the invention of things like surveillance cameras or proximity alarms or all those sorts of things, think about what it would have looked like to be able to know where someone was at and what they were doing. You didn't. You could have spies and maybe they would see someone, but you wouldn't. But God knows all those things. He knows them even now to a far greater degree than we with our technology and observation and all those sorts of things can do. Even beyond that, it says, you understand my thought from afar. Think about Jesus' conversation 
with Nathaniel about the fact that, well, hey, when you were under the fig tree, half a mile away, a mile away, I knew what you were thinking, and I said, hey, there's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel's response, this is the Lord, the Messiah, God, because only God can know our thoughts like that from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Again, people can have an idea of our daily habits and patterns of life. God knows every last detail. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. So sometimes, I don't know if this was a silly thing that some of us did in high school, I think you would see someone start to talk and you would try to anticipate what they were going to say and sometimes you would say it before they said it and they would get really irritated with you. None of you were probably like that in high school. But we, can have, we have a certain degree of predictive ability with what people are going to say next because they have similar patterns of what they're going to say. God doesn't have to guess. God knows exactly what we're going to say before we say it. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. When he says this, such knowledge, I think the fact that God knows everything about me, what do you do with that? You can't grasp that, really. God knows all things. God is everywhere. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David's going to have a series of contrasts that are inclusive, which is to say, he says, like, the top and the bottom and the furthest this way and the furthest that way, and the idea is it includes everything in between. So if you have the extreme endpoints of something, then you also have the beginning and, and the, the, the top part and the bottom part of it. Okay? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. That's as high as you can go. Heaven, where God is. We would expect God to be there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the lowest depth, the region of the dead, God is there too. And some people might think, well, God's not there because he's in heaven, but God is in both places, both extremes. If I take the wings of the dawn, if you see the, the, the morning sun rising, uh, for David, if they looked, if he looked eastward toward places like, I guess it'd be northeastward toward places like Babylon, out toward the wilderness, the sun's coming up. If he looked westward toward the Mediterranean Sea, where the sun's going down. If I look in the direction that the sun comes from, if I look in the direction the sun goes down, in all those places, God is there. Even your right hand, even your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. God is never so far away that he cannot reach us no matter how far away we think that we are from him. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. David's not saying something foolish or false, David is saying, we can't see in the dark. Perhaps a good illustration of this would be a little kid playing hide and seek. Take a, like a two-year-old. How do they play hide and seek? They go put their head under a pillow. 
You can't see me, so I must be hidden. We think that we are sometimes hidden from God in the same way that the toddler thinks he's hidden from whoever he's playing hide-and-seek with. God sees us no matter if it's day or night, no matter if it's sunny or stormy. God sees us. He is everywhere. God knows everything. God is everywhere. God has a plan. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I don't know that we would necessarily see this as a direct act of creation for every human being because God has established processes that are involved in the forming of children. Obviously, David's not denying those basic biological realities. But what he is saying is that as much as these as much as the birth of a child is the result of normal biological processes, God has had a hand in that as well. You wove me in my mother's womb. That's not just like, eh, you watched it off from a distance. He's saying, God has a role in making us the sort of people that we are from birth. One of the big discussions in education is this argument over whether people are the way that they are because of nature or because of nurture. The reality is both affect how we act and speak and think. But so much of who we are is a direct result of God's creative activity in the world, the way he designed human beings to be. We see that particularly in verse 14. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This one's a struggle for us. How are we fearfully and wonderfully made in a world that is broken? When things don't go right. When despite our best efforts, we get sick. When all of us will face death. Can we still, in the face of these realities, say that we are fearfully and wonderfully made? Yes. God has done an amazing work in making us as human beings. He says, wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Is it, you think, fearfully on our part, wonderfully on his? I don't know how else to take that fearfully aspect. Yeah. I'll have to think about that some more. Perhaps provoking reverence for his work is maybe one sense that we could take it, which would, I think, fit with what you're saying. He says, my frame was not hidden from you. This goes with the previous two ideas. God knows everything. God is everywhere. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. God knows and knew us before we were born. There's perhaps an argument to be made here, not a particularly definitive one, but there's at least a hint here of the reality that people are people before they're born. 
And that's how God made us to be. The main point I think that's being made is God knows our the course of our lives and the plan and purpose that He has from us from the moment that it begins when no one else even knows that we're going to be who we end up being. From the beginning to the end. He says, In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Long before you and I were born, God knew the date of our birth, the date of our death, and everything that would happen in between, and the ongoing eternal life that we would experience from that point after if we're trusting in Him. God knows all those things. They're not an accident. Sometimes people talk about tragedies or unhappy surprises or all of those sorts of things. God is not caught by surprise. God doesn't say, oh, I, I, I meant for this person not to go to that place and then they would have had this extra week. I meant for that baby to be, to be born on this date, not that date, but the doctor said it had to be this date, so they threw off my plan. God's not surprised by any of those things. This idea of things being written in God's book occurs several places in Scripture. Uh, when Moses intercedes for the Israelites, it's described there, this idea of being blotted out or added to God's book of life. There's a past, another passage in the Psalms where it talks about things being recorded in God's book in the context of David's sorrow. He says something along the lines of, you collect all my tears in your bottle, all of my actions are written in your book. God doesn't need a book. It's not like he's keeping a journal to keep track of what's going to go on. God is just a, a figure, a picture that says God knows everything that's happening. We might then say, well, if God knows all of it and God has said what it's going to be, why should I bother doing anything? Well, we know that that's not the right response because look at David's emphasis in verses 17 to 18 on his relationship with God. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. David is interested in and focused on developing his relationship with God. Despite the fact that God knows everything, is everywhere, and is carrying out his plan, David doesn't just say, I'm just going to sort of wait for it all to happen. David says, I'm meditating on your thoughts and the, the shadows, the pictures, the elements of your thoughts that I get to observe, God. I'm thinking about them. We have the opportunity to do that in connection with the scripture that God has given to us. He says, I think there's an implication here. He's meditating on them to the degree that he falls asleep and when he wakes up, he can still keep thinking about who God is. In contrast, his attitude toward the wicked is to be united with God's attitude toward the wicked. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from you, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. When we go through great difficulty, 
David's being the opposition of enemies, ours being a variety of things that we experience in our lives. When we encounter those things, there is a temptation to reach a breaking point of our human strength and to say, what's the point of following God anymore? Maybe if I ally myself with these people who are attacking me, they might show me some mercy, David could have thought. Why do I say that? Because the Israelites clearly thought that at a number of points in their history. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, all these other people, they're attacking us. If we just make a treaty with them, we'll be safe. Instead of trusting in God. We think the same thing. I, I, I deserve a break from the difficulty that God's brought into my life. I deserve to diversify my options. There was a, a sketch on TV one time a long time ago, and there were these people who wanted to make sure their baby had the best possible outcome in life. And so, in a mocking of religion kind of way, they're like, oh, well, let's give him a Jewish name and a Muslim name and a Christian name, and we'll baptize him into all three churches, and that way all the bases are covered. Sometimes we think, you know, I, I, I trust in God, but I want to hedge my bets. I trust in God, but let me trust in this person over here. I was thinking about that a lot as I've been looking into things related to Kelly in the last week or two. I think a number of the doctors we probably saw at the hospital have a kind of secular humanism that says man's going to continue to discover the mysteries of the universe and solve them and fix the brokenness of the world. There's a lot of people selling natural cures who have the exact same attitude. We as human beings will supersede the limitations of this imperfect human life and by receiving the hidden knowledge, whatever it is, we will have victory over all the evils and ills of this life. You know what the scripture holds out to us? I'm not saying abandon doctors, and I'm not saying ignore reasonable conclusions from a variety of sources. What I am saying is this. Our hope is not in the best that man can achieve from whatever source it comes. Our hope must be in the God who knows everything, is everywhere, and is carrying out his plan in our lives. If we really believe that, then our next response is going to be, God, instead of running away from you, draw me closer to you. What does that look like? Search me, O God, and know my heart. This is an invitation for a relationship with God because God's already doing that. How do I know that? He says, verse 1, You have searched me and known me, known me in my heart. He's asking God to keep doing what God is already doing and will do because He's God, but He's saying, I want you to do it because not just you are God over there, but you're my God. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. David's anxious thoughts were mostly about 
all the people that were running around trying to kill him. First Saul, then some of his generals, then some of his children, then some enemies from outside his kingdom. David's anxious thoughts were mostly about those things. We live in a very different world. Most of our anxious thoughts are about other things. Financial difficulties, health problems, upheaval in the world around us. Those are the sorts of things that tend to make us anxious. But the solution, whether it's physical enemies who are attacking us, or whether it's great trials that we encounter in our lives, the solution is to take those anxieties and say, God, you know them. God, use this thing that you have brought into my life to purge me of sin. See if there be any hurtful way in me to draw me closer to you. Lead me in the everlasting way. There's been a lot of people who've, who've written books about don't waste, you know, don't waste your life, don't waste your trial, all those sorts of things. But it's not like this is a new idea. If you went through the whole COVID thing in the last year and a half and your only conclusion was, I'm glad I didn't get sick or I didn't get sick very bad, or all those sorts of things, there's probably a degree to which we have not learned the lessons that God wants us to learn from experience like that. It should have stirred our hearts to evangelism. It should have helped us to see all of the people who are without hope in the world. It should have helped us to see that all of the things we use to make ourselves busy and happy and pursuing what we think is the good life can easily be taken away and our empty hopes. I've been reminded of all those lessons in the last week. When there is the prospect, potentially, of losing someone that you love, you don't care what's hanging on your wall. You don't care what kind of car you drive. You don't care about what movies you've seen or TV shows you've watched or music you've listened to or places you've gone for the most part. You're reminded that serving God and spending time with people is far more important than all of those things. And all of the things that sin holds out to you and offers you and says, this is what you really want, chase after it and it will make you happy, there is a clarity that those are lies that Satan is telling you. And so if you find yourself in a place of difficulty, maybe it's now, maybe it's down the road, maybe it's in the past, the solution to it is to remember who God is and what He's doing. He knows everything. He is everywhere. He is carrying out His plan. So what's our proper response? Our proper response is to strive to build our relationship with Him, to take the attitude that He takes towards sin, to learn from the trials and difficulties that He brings into our lives, 
and to see in them an opportunity for our faith to be grown and strengthened because he is preparing us for eternity with him. And that is far better than all that this world has to offer. We don't know where that journey ends. We don't really remember where it started because we were too young to remember. But God knows that journey beginning to end. God calls us to draw close to Him. God calls us to love Him, to hate sin. And what enables us in, mo in large part to do those things is the knowledge of who He is, is looking back and seeing the works He's done, is looking forward and anticipating the works that He's going to do. So, in times of trouble, run to God. Run away from sin. Because God can be trusted. He knows all. He is everywhere. He's carrying out His plan and wants us to build our relationship with Him even as He is building it with us. Let's pray. Lord, you have searched us and known us. You know the inmost thoughts of our hearts. You know our joys and our fears, what makes us angry, what brings us peace. You know all those things. Sometimes, God, we feel alone. No matter where we go in life, you are there. Sometimes we wonder what you are doing in our lives, but these verses remind us that you have a plan that you are carrying out beginning to end. And for your people, that plan is a good plan with a good end. And so Lord, when we are tempted to doubt these things, to forget that you're not surprised by anything that happens. To question whether you are near. 